Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Alexandra Allie Kemp was born on October 11, 1982, and grew up in Leewood, Kansas, where she lived with her parents and two brothers. At the age of 19, she completed her first year of college at Kansas State University and then returned home to Leewood. She had plans to work a summer job at the local Foxborough pool with her high school boyfriend, Phil Howes, and her brother, Tyler. She was also hoping to spend time with family and friends. On June 18, 2002, Phil worked the early shift before Allie arrived for her afternoon shift. Tyler had agreed to take over around 5 p.m. so Allie could head home and get ready for a date she had planned with Phil. However, when Tyler arrived, Allie was nowhere to be found and the pool was left unattended. Allie's books that she had been reading were still on the table, as was her phone. Tyler knew his sister would never leave the pool unattended, and so after a short search, he called his father in a panic. Their father, Roger Kemp, quickly dropped what he was doing and rushed to the pool. When he arrived, Tyler was still looking for his sister. The two of them continued their search, checking more and more unlikely places. The last place they checked was the pump house, and it was there that he saw what looked like a human leg partially covered with a blue tarp. Roger pulled the tarp away and shockingly discovered his daughter's beaten body. He immediately called 911, and she was rushed to the hospital but would sadly not survive. The medical examiner found her body covered in bruises and marks on her neck indicated that she had been strangled. Investigators began combing the scene, looking for any clues that might lead them to her killer. During their search, they found a small ointment cap, which they believed might have come from a first aid kit. News of her murder began to spread quickly, leading to a crowd at the scene. The police watched the crowd carefully, hoping to spot a nervous or suspicious person, but at the time, nothing came of it. With no options left, they began interviewing everyone that had a connection to Allie. While they interviewed her friends and family, one person really stuck out, her long-term boyfriend, Phil. The two were high school sweethearts, but called off the relationship when Allie went off to college. However, when she returned for the summer, they started the relationship back up. Detectives quickly learned from Bill that Allie had attempted to contact him just a few hours before her body was discovered. He had a missed call and voicemail from her at 2.52 p.m. He tried to call her back once he saw the message, but she never picked up. As for Phil's movements, he had left his shift at the pool to work his second job before calling in to play video games at a friend's house. Both these activities were corroborated by the people Phil had claimed to be with. He first became aware of the situation when he received a call telling him Allie was in the hospital. Since Phil had a solid alibi, he was quickly ruled out, along with every member of Allie's close friends and family. 
At this point, investigators were at a loss, but all that would change when a frequent visitor to the pool came forward and told an interesting story. They said a week before the murder, they saw a person hiding in the bushes nearby holding a pair of binoculars. They also got a tip from a lawn crew working nearby who said they saw a beige Ford pickup truck on the day of the murder. They said the truck came and went multiple times that day, which they found strange. Word of the pickup truck began to spread around the small town and led to multiple tips from people claiming to have information on it. However, they were never able to identify it. Investigators would eventually get new information from one of Allie's friends, Laurel. She said that she arrived at the pool around 3.15 p.m. and wanted to surprise her. So, she sat in her car and continuously honked her horn, hoping to get a reaction from Allie, but she never did. Instead, she noticed a man walking out of the pump room. Thinking it was Allie's boss, she panicked and ducked down behind her dashboard. From her hiding place, she continued to watch the man as he walked casually away from the building, waved in her direction, climbed into his vehicle, and drove off. Once he had left, Laurel went into the pool area to search for Allie, but left when there was no sign of her. She gave a description of the man, and a sketch artist was able to create a composite image. Thanks to her visit, detectives now had a time frame to work with. They already knew that Phil had received a missed call from Allie at 2.52 p.m., and now they had Laurel's visit placed at 3.15 p.m. That left a 23-minute window in which Allie was most likely attacked. After the sketch was released, multiple people began bringing in family photos of people they believed might be the killer. This eventually led them to James Strader, a mechanic who worked 20 minutes away in Olathe, Kansas, and had a striking resemblance to the man in the sketch. However, investigators would leave disappointed because James was working on the day of the murder, a fact that was confirmed by his boss. Investigators continued searching for a suspect, but in the meanwhile, a forensic team began testing the blood that was found on the small ointment cap. While most of the blood at the scene was linked to Allie, the blood found on the cap belonged to an unknown individual. They ran it through CODIS, but unfortunately, there were no matches found. Eighteen months into the investigation, the leads had basically dried up, so they decided to reach out to the local media. In January 2003, a mugshot appeared on a news broadcast showing a man who was suspected of sexually assaulting three women. Detectives on the case recognized the face immediately. It was the mechanic, James Strader, who was ruled out after providing an alibi. However, with this latest news in hand, they decided it was time to take another look. Most importantly, they needed to get a sample of his DNA. Investigators also wanted to bring James in for more questioning, but he eluded the police for three long weeks. He was finally apprehended after leaving a gas station in Utah without paying and was immediately pulled over by state police. After being brought in, he agreed that he resembled the sketch, but denied any involvement in the murder. Officers in Utah had also taken a sample of his DNA and uploaded it to the CODIS database, but strangely, it wasn't a match, and once again, he was ruled out. After months had gone by with no suspect in sight, Bob Fessler with Lamar Advertising decided to donate a billboard for free with information about the murder. After the billboard went up, investigators were given the name of Teddy Hoover by two separate people. Teddy resembled the composite image and owned a truck. 
He also maintained pools for a living, but said he never worked on that particular pool. Teddy refused to submit his DNA for testing and asked to speak to his lawyer before agreeing to anything. Teddy's lawyer said he was concerned about his privacy and didn't want his DNA to sit in CODIS. So the officers presented him with a deal. They would test the DNA, but would never upload it to the CODIS database. While waiting for Teddy to make a decision, detectives went back through their old notes and made a surprising discovery. Teddy had been at the scene on the day of the murder and had already spoken to detectives. Police notes showed his name listed amongst the bystanders interviewed at the pool. After three days of nothing, detectives called Teddy's lawyer, who informed them that his client had taken off. Months would go by with no signs of Teddy anywhere before they finally received an important tip in August 2004. The tip suggested that Teddy Hoover was actually Benjamin Appleby, and he had fled to Connecticut. He had been living under the Hoover alias to avoid prosecution for a 1997 sex offense. Thankfully, when he was finally taken in, the Connecticut State Police took a sample of his DNA. However, he continued to deny his involvement. Investigators then decided to put him in the investigation room where they had two binders on the table bearing his names. There was also a pin board with his photograph and pictures from the crime scene. Eventually, he broke down crying and admitted to killing Allie. He recounted the events, saying he visited the pool as part of his maintenance work and Allie was there when he stepped into the pump house. Benjamin made a pass at Allie by attempting to touch her, but she pushed him away, causing him to lose control. He also said he planned to sexually assault her and had grabbed the ointment to use in the process, but was interrupted when Laurel began honking her horn. He said he collected himself, leaving calmly and giving her a friendly wave as he walked to his vehicle. The DNA results confirmed Benjamin's confession, and he was arrested. However, when he entered the courtroom, he pleaded not guilty and claimed that his confession was coerced. He even accused the police of intimidation and threats against him and his family. However, DNA doesn't lie, so his attorney said he did kill her, but claimed it wasn't premeditated. However, based on the evidence, the investigators knew this wasn't true. In the end, Appleby was found guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to 50 years in jail. After the trial, Allie's parents organized Take Defense, the Allie Kemp Educational Foundation, a program that offers self-defense classes for women. Sadly, on April 4, 2022, Roger Kemp passed away at the age of 77. His sudden death left his friends and family devastated, and the Allie Kemp Educational Foundation released the following statement. Throughout the past 20 years, the Foundation and the Self-Defense Program have worked in conjunction to successfully train over 70,000 girls and women across the United States, ranging in age from 12 to 90 years. Arliss K. Perry was born on February 22, 1955, to parents Marvin and Jean in Linton, North Dakota. She and her high school sweetheart, Bruce Perry, graduated in 1973 and then married the next year on August 17, 1974. Arliss worked for a Christian youth group, taught Sunday school, and was described as trusting, joyful, and optimistic. Weeks after their marriage, they moved to Palo Alto, California to attend Stanford University. 
They moved into Quillen Hall in Escondido Village, a residence hall for married couples and partners with children. Bruce was now a second-year pre-med student who also maintained a job in order to support Arliss and himself. However, this caused Arliss to be alone most days, and she would even write friends and family back home, saying she felt isolated because Bruce was so busy with school and work. Arliss then got a job as a receptionist at a nearby law firm, and this gave her the outlet she needed. She then began enjoying life in California and finally felt that things were falling into place. At 11.30 p.m. on October 12, 1974, Arliss had some letters she wanted to mail, and so she and Bruce left Quillen Hall and began walking. However, during their walk, they would get into an argument about their car's tire pressure. Arliss then told Bruce that she wanted to go to the church to unwind and have some alone time. After parting ways, Bruce returned home. At 11.50 p.m., Stephen Crawford, who worked security at the church, saw Arliss enter. Two other people in the church also saw Arliss enter, go to a pew, and kneel to pray. When they left, she was still praying. At about 12.10 a.m., Stephen entered the church but didn't see anyone. He announced that he was locking up but never received a response. Not long after, Bruce became concerned when Arliss didn't show back up so he walked the half-mile to the church to look for her. However, when he arrived, all the doors were locked. He then decided to walk around campus searching for her. After being unable to find her, he returned home and waited until about 3 a.m. before reporting her missing. Bruce told authorities that she may have fallen asleep in the church, so they walked to the church and checked all the doors, but they were locked. They tried calling out to see if anyone was inside, but no one answered. A few hours later, the same security guard returned to the church to open it for the day. When Stephen entered the church, he found Arliss's deceased body and called it in, saying, Hey, we've got a stiff here. She was found lying partially nude on the front pew of the altar with her neck broken and her arms crossed over her chest with a candle in between. She had been beaten, strangled, sexually assaulted, and ultimately murdered with an ice pick. Investigators would also find a latent palm print on one of the candles near her body. It was later said that the crime scene resembled a satanic ritual. Strangely, when the cops arrived to question Bruce, they noticed he was covered in blood. He explained that he suffered from severe nosebleeds whenever he was stressed. Instead of telling Bruce the details of what they found, they asked him to come to the police station for questioning. They questioned him for two hours, creating various situations to elicit a reaction from him. For example, Arliss was cheating and he discovered it, or Arliss was pregnant and he was unhappy about it. Bruce voluntarily provided his prints for testing and took a polygraph examination. His prints didn't match the palm print found at the scene, and he passed the polygraph test and was no longer considered a suspect. That is, when they finally told him that his wife had been murdered. The FBI got involved and developed a profile of the murderer. They believed the killer was a loner with a military background between the ages of 17 and 22 and that he would collect possessions of his victims as souvenirs. It's also of note that Arliss was missing two objects from her possession. Investigators believe Arliss was still in the church with her killer when Stephen came to lock up. Someone passing by the church reported seeing a man with sandy blonde hair enter the church at the same moment Arliss did. 
another passerby between 12.15 and 12.30 heard a strange sound coming from inside the church, and when they stopped, the noise also stopped. When Bruce called the police to report Arliss missing, Stephen said he did a sweep of the church around 2 a.m., and the police performed a sweep of the outside around 3 a.m. Strangely, both times, all the doors were found locked. Stephen was initially considered a suspect, but was ruled out after he passed a polygraph test, and his palm print didn't match the latent palm print found at the scene. There was some suspicion regarding the Stanford Chapel Dean because he also had access to the church, but he passed a polygraph test as well. The handprint was compared to over 100 suspects, but no match was found. Sadly, the case would go unsolved for the next four decades. A co-worker of Arliss's at the law firm said that a man with sandy blonde hair and an athletic body had paid her a visit at work. The man and Arliss talked for about 15 minutes, and when Arliss returned, she appeared to be upset. Bruce was also asked about the man, but stated he had no idea who the individual could have been. After Arliss's body was returned to Bismarck, North Dakota, and buried, someone stole her temporary burial marker. This was strange because it was the only one stolen. This made people wonder if her killer was from Bismarck and had traveled to California to murder her. Part of Bruce's parents' job was to try and convert members of a satanic cult to Christianity. The cult was known as the Process Church of Final Judgment. They were into Scientology and Satanism and were known to perform rituals. Thirteen years later, in 1987, a book titled The Ultimate Evil, published by Mari Terry, reopened the entire satanic pentagram world once more. He was at odds with the police for dismissing Arliss and the Process Church of Final Judgment and claimed that the man Arliss was arguing with at work the day before she was murdered was a member of the satanic church. He further alleged that Arliss purposefully provoked an argument with Bruce to get some alone time with the man. The book became very popular, and he was even able to sell out a thousand-seat capacity venue where he would sit and discuss the case's theories. In his book, he discusses a theory about her murderer possibly being the serial killer, the son of Sam. In 1978, four years after Arliss's murder, David Berkowitz wrote to Arliss's home in North Dakota, claiming that the Process Church of Final Judgment hired a hitman to kill her because she wanted to convert them to Christianity. He told them that the cult was nationwide and that they would kill individuals throughout the country. He knew this because he claimed to be a member himself. He stated that Charles Manson and serial killer Otis Toole were also members. Berkowitz then sent a book to a police officer in North Dakota in 1979, and in the book, he wrote, Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain, followed to California, Stanford University. Two officers from California flew to New York to question Berkowitz about the murder, and after about 30 minutes, he stopped talking and stated he didn't want the other convicts to think he was a snitch. So, the police considered him useless and moved on. Arliss's murder was eventually linked to the murders of two other women at Stanford University. People came forward to say they saw the same type of man with sandy blonde hair roaming the area around the time of those murders as well. The police even questioned Ted Bundy, who was frequently in California between 1973 and 1974. However, he was ruled out as a suspect since he had an alibi for the night of the murder. 
Finally, in 2016, the police received a break in the case. They discovered a DNA profile of a male found on Arliss's jeans the night she was murdered. Police set out to interview everyone in the vicinity that night and collect DNA samples from each person. With that, they were able to eliminate everyone but the church's night guard, Stephen Crawford. Stephen Crawford, now 72 years old, was a veteran of the United States Air Force who began working as a police officer at Stanford University in the Department of Public Safety in 1971. However, in 1972, a new police chief decided to reorganize the department, and most of the police officers were offered jobs as security guards instead. Stephen despised this and began stealing items such as artworks and books and eventually left Stanford in 1976. In 1992, his ex-wife reported him for creating a false diploma with a blank certificate obtained from Stanford. He was subsequently prosecuted and arrested for stealing thousands of dollars worth of various items from the university. In the end, he would receive a six-month suspended sentence and two years of probation. In 1993, he relocated to San Jose, California, where he lived at the Del Coronado apartment complex. He worked as an insurance adjuster and led a relatively quiet life. Even though his palm print didn't match the one found at the scene and he passed the polygraph test, Crawford had remained a person of interest all those years. They compared his DNA to the DNA recovered on Arliss's genes, and lo and behold, it was a match. On June 28, 2018, investigators visited Crawford's apartment at 9.05 a.m. Instead of letting them in, he shouted, asking them to wait while he got dressed. The police waited for a few minutes and then entered his apartment using the master key they got from the building manager. After entering, they saw Crawford seated on the bed with a handgun and backed away. After hearing a gunshot, they entered and discovered Crawford on the floor with a self-inflicted wound. Upon searching his apartment, they discovered a copy of Maury Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil, as well as a handwritten suicide note on his desk, written in 2016, when investigators began to reinvestigate him. However, there was no mention of Arliss in the note. Unfortunately, this leaves us with some unanswered questions, such as, was the murder of Arliss part of his revenge against the university? Was she his only victim, or was he a notorious serial killer who got away with murder for many years? Was the satanic ritual part of his M.O., or just a way to throw off the investigators? Sadly, we will probably never know the answers to these questions. Terry Ann Seebeck was born on March 31, 1977, in Marion, Illinois. She grew up to be an artist, painting for a living, and eventually met Candace Majors, a Mount Carmel native born in 1981, and the two began a relationship. Candace and Terry were two single mothers living in West Frankfort, Illinois, and wanted to turn their lives around. They both had battled drug addictions, but found sobriety with the support of each other. Finally, in 2007, the couple moved in together. Terry was working for her father's painting business while Candace was training to become a radiologist. Their lives finally seemed to be on the right track until one day, tragedy struck them both. On October 19, 2009, Terry's aunt called 911 because Terry had missed work and no one could get in touch with her or Candace. 
her aunt on the house where the couple lived and after arriving she saw the front door covered in blood and decided to wait for the police to arrive. When police entered the home, they would shockingly find 28-year-old Candace and 32-year-old Terry's deceased bodies. An autopsy determined they were shot execution-style by a small-caliber handgun. Both of their credit cards and IDs were missing, as was Terry's Chevrolet Impala. However, there were no signs of a break-in and other valuables were left behind. In speaking with the women's friends, detectives learned of another couple, 19-year-old Afton Ferris and 29-year-old Michael Shallert, who had been living with them for the past few weeks. Michael was born in 1979 and grew up in Cheyenne, Wyoming. He became a father at the age of 15, and by the time he was an adult, he was drifting around the Midwest, working odd jobs and moving from place to place. He met Terry in West Frankfurt, and she allowed him to stay with her for a period of time. Michael returned to Cheyenne in 2008, where he met Afton, who was homeless at the time. She had grown up in foster care and could not hold down a job despite being valedictorian of her high school. Detectives then learned that Candace and Terry had accused Afton and Michael of stealing CDs, a tank top, and other things from them. After discovering this, they asked the couple to move out one day before the murders. Investigators wanted to question the couple, but they were nowhere to be found. They then learned that after being kicked out, they stayed with another friend. That friend told police that Afton and Michael left in the middle of the night and stole his 22 Ruger handgun. A day after the murder, Afton and Michael were named persons of interest. In speaking with Michael's family, they learned his friendship with Terry went back years. Because of this, they found it hard to believe he was behind such brutal acts of violence. During the investigation, officers obtained security camera footage from a local gas station that showed Michael filling up Terry's car and paying for it with Candace's credit card. Activity on Candace's credit card helped investigators track the couple over a thousand miles away in Laramere County, Colorado. They learned Michael had a friend who lived in a trailer park in Fort Collins, Colorado, and that's where they would find Terry's car parked outside. They then found Afton and Michael and took them into custody. Upon entering the trailer, they found blood-stained clothing belonging to Afton, stolen credit cards, and a black purse containing the murder weapon. A handwritten poem titled Bullets and Weed was found inside Candace's car and signed by Afton. It read, Seems like we got nowhere to run to and no way to go back. Guess the only way to go is to take this handful of bullets and a pocket full of weed. Another note found inside the car read, We are sorry we did this. I wish we hadn't done this, but we had been pushed too far. Terry and Candace were thieves and liars, and they continuously stole from one another and blamed it on somebody else, and we continuously got the blame. In her interview with police, Afton admitted to stealing the murder weapon. She said they originally intended to rob Terry and Candace, but they decided to kill them when they got to their house, claiming that they didn't have any other choice. Afton said that in order to gain entrance into the home, Michael told the women he was there to apologize, but instead, after being let in, he gunned them down in cold blood. She said she saw Candace was attempting to escape, so she grabbed her and brought her back in while Michael shot her again. In his interview with police, Michael admitted to murdering the victims with Afton's help. 
He said he and Afton also planned to take their own lives as well. Following their confessions, Afton and Michael were both charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Michael pleaded guilty to both counts and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Afton decided to go to trial, where she was found guilty of murder, home invasion, and armed robbery. She was also sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Paige Johnson was born on August 28, 1993, in Edgewood, Kentucky. As a teen, she lived in Covington, Kentucky, and was described as outspoken, feisty, and kind. During high school, 16-year-old Paige gave birth to a baby girl and ultimately quit school to care for her new daughter. On September 22, 2010, a few weeks after turning 17, Paige wanted to go out and have some fun. She made plans to go to a house party with 22-year-old Jacob Bumpass. She also made plans to end up at her sister Brittany's house, but she left her cell phone at home and told her sister she would call from a different number to update her on her plans. Brittany kept waiting for Paige to call, but that call never came. She wasn't concerned until Brittany failed to return home the following day. She called her mother, Donna Johnson, to ask if she'd seen Paige, but she hadn't either. At that point, the family decided to report her missing. When officers initially took the case, they believed that Paige was either still partying somewhere or was just another teen runaway. The police assumed she would return in a couple of days, so they didn't initially take action. Paige's family stayed adamant that Paige was a devoted mother who would have never abandoned her daughter. Since the police weren't being very helpful, the family decided to search for her themselves. They posted flyers, formed search parties, and talked to every person Paige knew, including Jacob, the boy she was with the night she disappeared. Paige's family questioned Jacob about that night, and he told them that he dropped her off at Brittany's house around 1 a.m. and left without looking back. He then initially lied about giving her alcohol, but later admitted to giving her beer. After talking with Paige's family, he quickly lawyered up and stopped cooperating. He stopped participating in searches and never answered another question. A few days after her disappearance, the police finally began their investigation by requesting tips from the public. They then quickly turned their attention to Jacob. He then gave them the same BS story and wouldn't cooperate any further. The police then decided to look at Jacob's cell phone data and noticed his story didn't match. He reportedly dropped Paige off near Brittany's house at 1 a.m. at 15th Street and Scott Street in Covington, but his phone records showed him elsewhere. And at about 4 a.m., his phone pinged near East Fork Lake, about 25 miles away. From that lake, Jacob posted a couple of random updates on Facebook talking about his insomnia and love for fishing. This was strange because Jacob had never posted comments like this before and never did again. The timing was also odd, and it seemed like he was trying to create an alibi. The police then decided to search the lake, but it was over 4,000 acres. They spent weeks looking for Paige or any clue related to the case, but they ended up empty-handed. In 2011, Paige was declared legally dead, allowing her family to file a wrongful death lawsuit against Jacob. However, in court, Jacob kept pleading the fifth, 
and when asked to take a polygraph test, he refused. It would be another 10 years before the family would finally have some long-awaited answers. During this time, the family kept hearing rumors about Paige being passed out at a party. Multiple people at the party recalled seeing Jacob and another young man carry her out. Finally, in March 2020, almost 10 years after Paige went missing, a married couple who were out deer hunting near the East Fork Lake found some burned human remains. They were found in a wooded area off Mathis Road in Claremont County, Ohio. The police quickly sent a search team and unearthed the remains located 45 minutes from Paige's home in Florence. Because so much time had passed, dental records were used to confirm the remains belonged to Paige. The body was found about two miles away from their initial search radius. Interestingly, it was only a mile from where Jacob's phone pinged on the night of her disappearance. Unfortunately, they were unable to get enough conclusive evidence due to the body's decomposition to charge Jacob with murder. Instead, they charged him with abuse of a corpse and tampering with evidence. In June 2020, he was indicted but pleaded not guilty. He was released on bond and is currently awaiting trial with the next hearing scheduled for July 2023. At this point, the prosecution may never be able to prove foul play, but they are hopeful they can at least convict Jacob for actively hiding her deceased body. While there are theories about what might have happened to Paige, including drug overdose and sexual assault, the prosecution claims they may never prove foul play. The body had decomposed beyond recognition, and there was insufficient evidence to charge someone with homicide, but the police are confident of one thing, Paige died on Jacob's watch, and he actively concealed the fact. Noma Stamey Cobb was born on November 16, 1962, in Lincoln County, North Carolina. At the age of 29, Nona was a widow with a three-year-old son named Josh, but due to her struggles with substance abuse, Nona's sister was granted custody of Josh. On July 7, 1992, at 6.15 a.m., Nona was found strangled to death on the northbound side of Interstate 77 near Elkin in Surrey County, North Carolina. She was last seen the night before getting into a truck driven by an unidentified man at the Welcome Center on Interstate 85 in Cleveland County. Unfortunately, with very few leads to go on, the case would go unsolved for the next 30 years. About three years into the case, investigators suspected the killer might be a truck driver by the name of Sean Patrick Goebel. Goebel had confessed to the murders of Brenda Hagee, Sherry Monsieur, and Alice Haynes. Goebel of Ashboro, North Carolina, targeted sex workers and transported them over state lines before dumping their bodies on different interstates in multiple states. Investigators looked into dozens of murders across several states that matched Goebel's pattern, including Nona's. However, in 1995, they were able to rule him out as a suspect when his DNA didn't match the DNA found on Nona's body. 26 years later, in 2021, investigators got a break in the case after providing DNA found on the victim to Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick with Identifiers International. With the use of genetic genealogy, investigators finally had a suspect, 71-year-old Warren Luther Alexander of Diamond Head, Mississippi. 
On March 27, 2022, Alexander was extradited back to North Carolina and officially charged with Nona's murder. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.